Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that early childhood nerd podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. Um, I'm Heather Burnt-Santi. This is our 300th episode, so I have a Yay. bunch of the nerds back with me today. Yay! Um, Richard Cohen is on. He's just waving. He forgot. Oh, hi. <laughs> Mike Huber. Oh. Liz Nolasco. Hey. And her cat. And... <laughs> Carol Garboden Murray. Hi, everyone. Yay. I've done so many um uh interviews with other people for the summer for the podcast that I don't feel like we've had just a bunch of us nerds recording together for a long time. And I love it. Um, so our tradition, I guess, now is we did it for the 200th episode and now we're doing it for the 300th as we're recording in our pajamas, which uh for those of you listening to the audio version, you're just gonna have to trust the pajama party vibe but when you see the uh the video version you'll see uh you'll see Richard and Liz have very decorative jammies uh Mike and I have just regular jammies Carol had another meeting so she has to be in her grown-up clothes um we're gonna talk about school readiness Um, all right. So the quote is from um, Learning Together with Young Children by Deb Curtis and Margie Carter, right from the very first paragraph of the introduction. <laughs> um, but they wrote, do schools and early childhood programs primarily exist to produce compliant workers for economic function? Or is the goal to help children grow into their full potential as informed, engaged citizens eager to make a contribution to their communities? Um, so, so we've had this topic for a while, but we spent about a half an hour before I hit record trying to find just the right quote because I didn't have that, uh, that ready to go. And, um, uh, so Richard, uh, uh, suggested that we look for something that talks about kind of the factory model of education and the idea that, that school is based on preparing children for work in factories. If we're looking at the historical roots of our current school system or school processes, um, and that's, uh, so I think this is a, a good quote, but the other thing I'll say before I open it is, um, I've been thinking a lot lately about how we're not really focused on getting children ready to learn. We use that word, but it's not about their learning. It's more about their performance. And like, we're teaching them to be school students, not to be learners. And I think that's a, a, a distinction, um, we we use the right words. We say ready to learn, but we what we really mean sometimes is ready to receive information <laughs> or ready to passively participate. Um, uh, so anyway, I, I let's 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 be grouchy about school readiness for a while, and then we can talk about um, what to do instead. We can we can do a little bit of um, is there any hope kind of conversation at the end. <laughs> but let's start with why this why this is a topic that that we all want to talk about. I, when you said um, performance, yeah. that really made me think about um, the adult view of children. And I've been thinking a lot about how adults feel good when they hear kids memorize the days of the week or when they hear kids use big words 
or when they're surprised by this content, the children know all these facts about dinosaurs. You know, it's like um, there's a performance element. And then I think it crosses over into a measurement and, and seeing what school looks like. And then I think it crosses over into marketing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think in our country, it's so complicated, right? Because so many families are paying for quality care and education. And now we have this UPK movement that's rising, which is potentially a wonderful thing for our country. Um, but what what is early education? What is preschool in this context of who is the child and what does the adult expect and what is school? And then this whole consumerism marketing. So the child is a performer or mm -hmm. the child is a participant, right? And being a participant in learning can look so messy. It can look so confusing. It can look so beautiful, mm -hmm. but it doesn't always have that element of neatness. Like, oh, wow, he learned his days of the week, you know? <laughs> so I think that's a very complicated answer, but that kind of, that, that word performance got me going in that direction. Well, and that word performance to me, sorry, Mike, um, implies product rather than right. process. So everyone, including the parents who just want to make sure that their children are getting the best education they're spending their hard-earned dollars on, right? Um, they judge quality by watching their kids' performances. What does the what does my child appear to know? Um, that must mean that they're getting, you know, they're having the right early childhood experience. Um, so I agree with you, Carol, that word performance to me is troubling. And I was gonna bring up just that idea that I understand the thinking of it, of schooling as you know preparing children for factory work. There's a historical reason for that. But I also think that Carol's use of the word consumer really mm -hmm. hits it. I think we're really raising kids to be consumers. And you know, you're a passive consumer, you're not a creator, you're a consumer. Um, yeah. At least because you can test that. Yeah. So Mike, say more about how school children are consumers. Well, I think it comes down to teachers have the knowledge. They give it to us. So our job, as, you know, when we're when we're students, or I guess I should say when the children are students, um, their job is to do what the teacher says, you know, to follow what the teacher says, which also fits into that factory work model, too. I, But I think more so right now, it's more about, and here's the product. And if we can only find the right curriculum to purchase, then the kids will learn more, you know? So it, yeah. um, so I think in some ways it, it hits at some things that the factory model um, idea doesn't. That just more about how it ends up becoming big business. And, you know, it's up to states and the universal pre-K really gets into it because to make it efficient enough, we have to find those bigger companies that are going to, have the right product to then give the teachers so then they can give it to the kids. Um, and there's not this idea that people are creators or that we're creating something in the classroom itself. Mm -hmm. So that's what. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And societally, we have such a short view of what school is for, right? School is for life success. School is for making money later, which returns back to that capitalist viewpoint. But there isn't this view of, you know, the vast majority of these children are going to our schools that are set to these standards and these 
frameworks and models of teaching and what kind of citizens do we want in the world and how can we empower these kids to become citizens and to be citizens versus, you know, as you've all said, sitting and absorbing information and maybe hopefully learning how to analyze it, but more than likely just learning how to spit it back out. <laughs> yeah. So Tiffany joined while we were in the middle of that. And I feel like Tiffany, you came in at just the right time to, to jump I on. We're talking about capitalism. <laughs> we're talking about capitalism. You came in at just the right time. So we're, um, we, we're talking about like mentioned capitalism yet. Yeah, she Wait. appears like a magic genie. My ears perk up. <laughs> um, but we're talking about the factory model kind of of education and how that factors into school readiness and um school readiness becoming kind of a marketing uh uh phrase, some t- sort of. Um I just so I, I just um recorded with um I'm going to try and make this relevant, but really, I just want to talk about this part that I recorded with William Doyle and Posse Solberg last <laughs> week, authors of Let the Children Play. And um, I just like to say that. Um, but anyway, they one of the things they did talk about was how the, the phrase 21st century skills has sort of not taken over school readiness as the catchphrase, but kind of joined the school readiness uh, movement. And it's it's essentially also just sort of a marketing phrase for commodifying readiness and co- commodifying children and making products that that people can sell um, rather than really thinking about um, what Deb and Margie said in the quote, um, helping children grow to their full potential as informed, engaged citizens eager to make a contribution to their communities. Yeah, I have an example of that. Recently in our town, we're having the AmeriCorps, which is again, a very a very well-intentioned organization. They're training volunteers who get a stipend to come into early childhood settings. And, you know, um, so I, I did have an encounter with them and, 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 you know, they want to come into our school, but the, the, the package, the package is again, how are we going to prove that we are making a difference and how is it going to be measurable? Mm -hmm. So they, I can't remember, I think it was like, infused tutoring is what they called it oh, so they're wow. training these people in math pre-literacy and pre-math those two areas math and literacy and it's this uh infused tutoring model and they come into your center for maybe 10 to 20 hours a week and on top of not part as the ratio but on top of what you're already doing in your school in your child care center they are implementing these um what they call play-based lessons, but they are linked to research that shows evidence that these children who get this, their fourth year of life, are going to have these skills when they enter kindergarten. And I have no doubt that that's true, right? I have no doubt that those kids who get that infused tutoring then can say, yes, that's an A, that's not a, a T, that's an A. So they're going to get some skills that help them take that first step into kindergarten. Um, And it's just such an interesting conversation because in my dialogue with them, I said, so are your infused tutors able to adapt a little bit to our way of seeing play and care as the primary pedagogy and looking more at the processes and the underlying, you know, learning impulses that are natural to children and they were like no not we really need to stick to the to we the need fidelity we need fidelity so <laughs> so that was the conversation and certainly again this is their link to harvard they're linked to you know 
uh, all sorts of uh, poverty um, movements that, you know, are so good in terms of really changing the culture of, of, of schools and giving children more opportunities. Um, so, so it's just that interesting conversation about measurement. And also it's, it's, you know, again, I think of, of Delph, is it Farhan, Farhan, Farah? Yeah. Um, I think of her research. Yes, it's true. Those children will be able to recite their ABCs. And then that, that there is like a six month period that will, um, they will show some evidence of growth. And then what she was seeing in her studies that by third grade, everyone had kind of uh, equalized mm -hmm. and those children who had had perhaps a lot of training when they were three and four were actually doing worse mm -hmm. um, than their peers. Um, and she was linking it to sort of a burnout or a feeling of being corrected and being um, in a sort of rote um, model of education that wasn't inspiring children to to really love school mm -hmm. so there's that conversation as yeah, well yeah yeah and we the could... classism sorry, the classism and white savior complex that are just inherent in many of the words you just used right these targeted <laughs> programs towards children in poverty yeah. we're gonna make sure that you know we bring them into the hegemony immediately mm -hmm. and yes. we're going to you know take away those differences because it doesn't serve the greater narrative of saving them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was one, one thing that, um, that I read. So when I was trying to figure out the quote, I was looking through this book last night called rethinking school readiness. That's a collection of essays that I, anyway, I was just looking at what I had highlighted, um, to see what we should use for today. And we use none of them, but one thing that, um, that was, uh, Oh, 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 oh no, I've lost it. Liz, what were you just talking about? Oh, poverty. They, they, the, one of the one of the authors, one of the writers, did say, you know, if our concern is that um, these children who are in poverty are not, you know, doing as well in school, whatever that means, um, then then why 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 isn't there just kind of communal agreement that then we should be looking at poverty? <laughs> No, we, we think, nope, we need to work these three, four and five year olds harder because they live in poverty and poverty doesn't do as well in school um, instead of just saying, oh, OK, so so what's what could we do to solve that root root issue with with maybe some grownups taking more of the responsibility instead of loading it onto those the shoulders of children who are, you know, 36 to 60 months old. Well, and who decided that reading and math should be the greatest focus mm -hmm. for its early years. Why are we why are we already tracking them towards their SAT scores at age three and four? Mm -hmm. You know, um, when we talk about school readiness, what does school even mean? Mm -hmm. And so how does that then translate into what what are we doing to get them ready for it? Um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, in the, in the work that I did in neighborhoods of poverty in early childhood, um, the focus was heavily on early intervention programs around reading and math. And what was completely lost there was any kind of executive function sort of work, any kind of play, any kind of social, emotional skill development. And while those kids, like Carol said, 
may have tested better, which was the goal for those reading and math skills, they couldn't function in a community environment um, because there was no effort put into those critical parts that we six know are the most important parts in early childhood work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you gonna jump in, Tiff? I feel like this is where you should jump in. I know I have a toddler trying to steal a phone in the background. <laughs> um, this is, so to me, everything that's happening relates back to that Elliot Haspel conversation about how we only view early childhood education through its economic impact. And like, yeah, thanks capitalism. Um, <laughs> but what I was frantically trying to do in the sidelines was that um, the NIER, N -I -E -E -R, National Institute of Early Education Research newsletter um, had an article yesterday that they sent out in their weekly newsletter that said, oh, guess what? The relationship with teachers is more important when talking about ACEs and like uplifting children through education. Uh -huh. And it's like the research is there. Why do we keep not listening to it? Yeah. Why do we keep just like, oh, I'll just keep scrolling through that. That one wasn't important. But yeah. the end of it says, like, the study recommends a constructivist, social-based, relationship-based model for education. <laughs> and every child that went through that program was happier and more, like, mitigated their ACEs score long-term through the rest of their life. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're trying to help their lives be great lives. And that should be the focus of every conversation when we're talking about children. Yeah. And Rand. patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. I was pausing because I thought surely either Mike or Richard was going to jump in there. Um, right. but so I think part of the the problem is we have this model, which is the factory model in in not even just um we're preparing them for factory work, but just that this is how learning must happen. It's a uh conveyor belt kind of thing what do you call that right. assembly line where right. at each stage we just give them this 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 and so that they always will be ready for the next thing um, right. and we think we can prepackage that we think we can guess what that needs to be what those those pieces of machinery that we add at each point need to be um, and so when when research comes up like about relationships or about social emotional or you know research that's been out there that suddenly resurfaces um, instead of saying, oh, we should relook at the whole system with this lens, we think, oh, how can we make a piece of machinery about social emotional learning that we can plug in when they come to our, our point of the, the assembly line? And, yes. and then it doesn't fit because, um, because it's not that measurable performative thing that numbers, letters, shapes, and colors are. Right. The, I think the conveyor belt in this case is is usually a checklist of some sort. Yeah. Right. There's or standards. Or standards. And okay, this is what we need the 12 month old to do or this. And when you, whenever you like read biographies or hear stories of people who are really successful, it's usually they didn't do well in school until this one thing happened and it sparked them. Mm -hmm. and it's like, why aren't we talking about the sparks? Um, yeah. Which I guess, um, you and I recorded Heather with uh, Issa Marks, and there was yes. that term "genius" was the one used, and now I forgot the author that came from. But you know that idea of what's the thing that sparks the Golden child? Something, yeah. You know, and that's gonna that's gonna be success. Not well, did you do? You didn't do all the things on the checklist. 
Right. Therefore, we can't have you go on to the next thing. We have to work, keep working on the thing that you don't like <laughs> time with, not around your sense of competence, not around your executive function skills, but we're just right. going to do the thing on the checklist. Yeah. It like makes you look at the things the child's not doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, two toddlers on the show now. Wow. Um, so, you know, I think so that, you know, that makes me think about the early learning standards that every state has to have now. And I, I don't know of any that were developed thinking, um, what do we know, developmentally speaking, typically about uh, infants, one-year-olds, two-year-olds, and how can we best support that? We looked at what do we want them to do when they're 18? And let's work backwards from that. And that, um, uh, that's, I think, um, a really harmful way to approach uh, working with young children, any child really. Um, you know, I, I was recently in a meeting where uh, they were talking about, you know, I work in a college now, so I'm in lots of these meetings where we're talking about, we need more college students. And so now they're, you know, the conversation is, well, if we can hook them at 13, we can get them to come straight, you know, to college when they graduate. And I was like, we're pushing them from both ends now. <laughs> like they can't have, they can't have this part of childhood because they've got to be ready for um, the school system and kindergarten or first grade or whenever they go in. And they can't have this end part of childhood because they've got to be figuring out what they want to do with the rest of their lives um, and, and get college figured out. And it just, it, it hurt. I mean, it, of course it, it annoys me and I get angry, but it, it hurts my heart that adults who have chosen to work with young children have such a, a hard time seeing childhood, I, you know? And if we're going to talk about the other end, because we're saying school readiness and because our field focuses on school readiness, yeah. the other end is 12th grade. But having, you know, volunteered a lot in nursing homes, nobody has said, do you know what? I actually finished some of the third grade standards in first grade. And that's my memory of my life. That's yeah, the thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, you know, it sounds like I'm changing subjects, but it's like, if we're not preparing people to have a good life, what are we doing? Yeah. Well, it goes back to that conveyor belt and assembly line, right? So if we're saying the definition of school, basically we're admitting to it, we as a society are saying school is an assembly line. And so school readiness is putting them on that, on that assembly line sooner mm -hmm. so they can be prepared for the quote unquote start of the assembly line in kindergarten. Yeah. And the way to do that is to just get them there sooner. And that's just so sad and so disturbing. Because yeah. as you said, it's all about focusing on the future and early childhood is all about focusing on the present and we should can't be. do that as long as we're burdened by these worries and concerns about the future yeah so so maybe this is a good place to shift the conversation towards you know what we can be doing what we should be doing but uh, uh it, it come whenever i talk about readiness um or you know i had a student last year who was talk. she worked for she worked for Head Start and she was talking about how their work with the parents was even getting parents school ready. So like their attendance policies for three-year-olds were geared towards making sure parents knew how to get their kids to school on time down the road. So it's not even just children, but right. um, uh, it always makes me think of something that I heard Lisa Murphy, for those of you who don't know who one name Lisa is, um, Lisa said, 
long time ago, I heard her say, you know, if we knew a famine was coming, we would not start starving children now so that they're ready for hunger. We would give them everything we knew if we if we thought there was going to be a food shortage, you know, on a broad scale, we would be doing everything we, we should. I would hope we would be doing everything we could be to make sure that they're healthy and fed and 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 prepared for that now, which is a different preparation than what we're talking about when we think, well, they've got to learn to sit still and obey eventually. So I'm going to be a little harder on them now when they're three so that they're ready to do that when they're five or six. We had that same conversation here at my school yesterday. We had, um, we were fortunate to have um, Julia Kambasa here. She was talking to our educators about learning stories and showing video of just like such rich, deep play and talking about the teacher's role. And that came up, it comes up all the time, right? Like, well, if my kid's going to kindergarten, like they're going to get their spirit crushed in public school. So right. if you're going to have this freedom and we're going to be celebrating their movement and then they're going to be told and wiggling is bad. Like, you know, is this okay? Are we, what, what is our role for preparing them? I don't want my kid to be crushed. Mm-hmm. And, and that, and Julia brought that same thing up, like, okay, you know, what is early childhood and, and what is our purpose? And are we going to exactly what you said, start depriving children <laughs> to prepare them for something that is to come. And I, yeah. what popped into my mind was this story of my own child having a rich play-based early childhood experience and going to public school. And um, I remember one of the first conversations that he had with me was he said, mom, the teacher gave everyone a token for standing, for coming back to their desk and sitting down quietly after we walked in the line, but she missed Justin. Mm. And, and I thought, wow, I am so happy. My kid is someone who had an early childhood experience that was very different than this mm-hmm. because we didn't treat children that way in, in his early childhood ex- it, it setting. He learned about fairness and justice and kindness, and he didn't learn about ranking kids. Yeah. Um, and he that he at bedtime, he had to say, I'm worried about Justin. Yeah. I'm worried about Justin. I thought, so he's a thinker. He's a carer. He's and all kids are mm-hmm. all kids mm-hmm. are. That's but but now I feel like, OK, he was prepared to be a thinker. Yeah. He was prepared to question the system on the first day of kindergarten. And I think that's what we want to do. Right. And for the parents, in terms of getting parents ready for kindergarten, we can tell them our stories. We can say, Hey, you know what? When my kindergarten teacher sent home the homework, I very kindly said to her, we're not going to do homework in our house. (laughs) We're going to make dinner together. And then we're going to hang out in the backyard. Mm -hmm. And you know what she said to me? She said, wow, thank you for letting me know that. (laughs) And we had a whole discussion with the school about it. She said, I thought parents wanted homework in kindergarten. So, you know, we can advocate, we Mm -hmm. can help our parents see that there's a, there's a new way to be ready for kindergarten. And it's, it's, it's helping our children be thinkers. And there are some really great, wonderful educators who are also feeling this resistance Mm -hmm. and want to have this dialogue with us. So kindergarten readiness, maybe we can think about it in a different way. You said Mm -hmm. in a hopeful way. Yeah. Maybe we can celebrate children as thinkers. Yeah. Well, the way I've always said it is, thank you, Carol. That's you just, you summed it all up so perfectly. Um, We all just nod and listen to Carol. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was perfect. Yeah. Um, Because um, what I've always said, and I've said it before on the show, 
is that in addition to caring and love and kindness and respect and all those things that are inherent parts of early childhood experience should be, mm -hmm. um, we need to help children solve problems. We need to give them lots and lots of problems to solve, conflicts to resolve. And um, we, 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 what we tend to do in the society is to avoid those things. Mm -hmm. We don't like people and the subset of people, young children, to have problems and to face challenges. But in early childhood education, we need to give them lots of problems to solve. We think the, the logic is, well, if they're going to encounter worksheets, we need to give them worksheets now. Yeah. And if they're going to encounter re pressure to read, we need to get them started reading now. But in fact, if we just give them lots of problems to solve, then when they get to elementary school, learning how to do a required worksheet is just another problem to be solved. Mm -hmm. Learning how to sit for a long time in a desk because you have to. The answer isn't to sit them at desks earlier. The answer is to give them problems to solve so that when the problem of sitting at a desk comes, they can figure out how to navigate that moment. Yeah. And so I want to uh, assume that you, when you, when you don't mean we should make their life difficult when you say we should give them problems to solve. Like no, we should say it a different way. Yeah. We should let them play. Yeah. <laughs> you just let them play yeah. and opportunities for solving problems yeah. will abound. And interact with each other. And yeah. 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 Um, I'd like to jump in as I clean the markers that Judy so kindly put away in the cup of milk. <laughs> so tidy. Um, She's a good helper. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Judy. Uh, that I think another thing we can be doing is advocating for the idea that school is childcare. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When kids go to school, they are being cared for in a place by individuals. Would you, like, if it was just kids that, like, here's here's the person that you're going to care for in my home all day, and they don't let you go to the bathroom, and they make you do worksheets all day, and they yell at you when you don't want to do this very direct instruction, listening, sitting activity, like, you would fire that nanny. And so like, why do we have this expectation that just because it's school, it must be good and not that fundamental that if the care isn't good, then who gives a crap what our educational experience is like? Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think there are folks who would appreciate that about their nanny because they've been pro we've been programmed to think that every moment yes. should be educational. And that's what education looks like to so many of us if we've never been offered another way of thinking about it. Yeah. Mike's got his, his hand up. He's ready to go. And I think the paradigm shift that is needed is that even 12th graders or whatever, you know, high school students, it's about care. Otherwise, the pandemic would have produced the best students ever, even when we use the measurements we're already using. Uh -huh. And it's opposite because the caring that happens, that teachers, like good teachers at any level know that's part of the job. But it's not the thing that they talk about any, you know, in education, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you're not helping the student figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their life. Even though lots of people talk about the reason I'm in this career is I had this, you know, teacher in ninth grade that whatever, you know, and so when we ignore the caring elements of 
all education, um, I, I think we run into that problem of, because we could easily say, you know, that's the thing that drove me nuts of like, how did we get through the pandemic and people talking about how hard it was for students at every level and then say, but what we need is more academics because they fell behind <laughs> in academics. Yeah. It's like, but they fell behind in academics because we weren't caring. They weren't focused on social emotional issues. They weren't dealing with the problem solving. Mm -hmm. I mean, middle school and high school is all about problem solving social emotional issues. And then there's classes that you go to in between. Mm -hmm. um, and like, we ignore that part. Yeah. Every level. So yeah. I don't but and even, then when it is brought up in the in the upper grades, it's as a problem solving tool for those kids. Yes. Right. You build relationships with those kids so they don't act out. And so you can really teach them. Mm -hmm. it, it's seen as the the way to it, it's seen as a Band-Aid measure. Right. You build the relationships and then they'll care about your coursework. Right. Uh, it's still relationships and social emotional considerations become commodified and performative <laughs> and and right. tools after the fact for um for that kind of compliance and control that we're starting to focus on so early um and i think like you know there's those two 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 like the the binary right yeah. it's like care and love is soft mm -hmm. and this other stuff is hard yeah and how do we say hey care and love is the hard stuff you know, like yesterday when I was my educators writing learning stories, this is the hard stuff. A checklist is actually pretty easy. You can figure that out, but this is the hard stuff. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the subtleties. It's the thinking, it's the empathy, it's the making, solving problems. Like Richard said, yeah. it's, it's um, considering other perspectives, like yeah. care and love and play is the hard stuff. It's the rigor. It's the real life. It's the foundation of all the thinking and motivation. And, and like you guys talked about the brilliance and the, and the, and the genius of humans. So like this idea that it's soft and, oh, we're being so gentle and then they're going to go to public school and they're going to have such a hard time hitting that, hitting that real world. It's, it's like, um, we have to, really cut through that i guess that's patriarchy right because yes. care and love care and love are are women that's, you know typically lady gendered, yeah. gendered. <laughs> yeah yeah so we've got problem solving we've got care and love and relationships as things we should uh be thinking about that are school readiness um if we really need to define things in terms of whether it's getting them ready for school or not those things all do contribute to sending uh, a, a child into this new system that they're going to have to, you know, mm -hmm. face and be part of and, 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 and navigate what, what else should we be doing instead of focusing on the assembly line? Well, I want to reiterate something Tiffany just said, which was revolutionary and needs to be said again and louder. That's our girl. School is childcare. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know who I was quoting, though? <laughs> That's a Carol line. <laughs> well, there you go. Perfect. Because, you know, I spend so much time, not so much, but I spend time disagreeing with people or trying to help them understand this very concept. Mm -hmm. And they will say, I am not a caregiver. I am a preschool teacher. Yeah. And that's why I get paid more money because I know how to write lesson plans with student outcomes. 
and you know ensure that they're meeting their outcomes and all those things. And so teachers are far more important than caregivers. And so there's a piece of patriarchy woven into the system um, that has us grownups thinking, um, having our values um, skewed in the wrong direction. Yeah. So part of the answer is changing the system, the systems that the grownups are in that care for young children. Yeah. And I think this is maybe a good point, part to say, we're not sitting here saying that people who work in public schools are terrible, evil people intentionally yeah. harming children. We're talking about the system that we're all part of, right? And every you. every profession has the the wonderful and the not so wonderful and the whole in between. So so I don't I don't want people to be like, oh, they just spent an hour bashing um kindergarten teachers or whatever. It, but the system creates these roles and these these views and this lens that that gets in the way of doing what's really yes supportive and healthy and it's, it's that big disconnect between you know if you know better do better well our research knows better yeah but our praxis has not caught up in right. decades why not yeah 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 it's and that hyper-individualism again, though. You know, parents have children and want that child to be the best child. Um, and so we need to get this into them early so they're ready for school mm -hmm. and so they can succeed at life. And we're seeing this increased, um, oh no, I'm inequality. I don't know why that word was so hard to access. Increased inequality. And we're saying, wait, I need my child to keep up yeah. my standard of living or I need my child to get ahead of where we are. And all of my hopes and dreams are going to be pinned vicariously on the child mm -hmm. and therefore all of it needs to get in early. And so we can't have these broader ideas of what education is for, how we support and build these grownups who are going to change things and do things well without supporting and caring for their families and making their situations less precarious, mm -hmm. um, which I guess is even a little bit bigger than changing the whole school systems, but, <laughs> but, but it, it all kind of goes together, right? You but I think the six of us can do conversations. it. <laughs> well, Richard said we should give problems for the children to solve. And we could just say, okay, this week we're solving patriarchy. Go. There you go. P is we... for patriarchy. <laughs> but we'll make it a song and we'll have, um, we'll have a story and, finger plays finger plays yes that was i was i was forgetting what those were um yeah it's i mean of course it's a big huge systemic problem but that doesn't mean that so i this week i i mean i almost emailed you all and said let's not do school readiness because um this week for some reason i've been feeling less hopeful about the work than i than I usually do. Like, I, it's, it's always like, you know, there's always barriers and the systems are big and it, but, but I always, usually, I always usually feel like, but if, you know, that small group of committed, determined people, whatever the Margaret Mead quote is, um, can, can stick with it and make the difference then we'll do it. But this week I really was like, why, why am I even still <laughs> talking about these things with people? Um, so, so I guess where I'm going with that is that, um, I, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the power we each have wherever we are um, to sort of push back against the system. 
I would say that I have, I get so much strength from you, all you modern people out there <laughs> that are, that are seeing children. But I also think about John Dewey and I also mm. think about Vivian Gusson Paley. And I also think about, you know, the people who were not popular a hundred years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're not alone. We're not alone. And it is a slow, and maybe the pendulum swings and we're our life this period of our life has, we just continue to see, like Tiffany said, we know better and we're not doing better. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, in, we're, we're going to have a little blip here, but, but we do have each other. We do have a, a, a really large group of, of, of committed educators across the nation and across the world who really see children. And we do have this history mm-hmm. of people who weren't popular a hundred and we we can go back, right? We can go back to Froebel. <laughs> we can say there were people, there have always been people who said play, yeah. children, agency, choice, the things that we're talking about. And the only other thing that comes to my mind is, is was it Kisa, Kisa Marx? Mm-hmm. In that last talk, she said, why is this renegade? Yeah. Why is this revolutionary? This is loving children. This needs to be normalized, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I can see, I slip, I slip up and down that, that, that continuum. Yeah. Like I'm alone. I'm yeah. doing this. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm exhausted. And then on the other hand, wow, mm-hmm. wow. There's so much, there's so much support. Yeah. So much movement. Um, but it does feel countercultural at times and that can wear you down. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Carol. <laughs> and I, Sorry, think- I had to disappear. The dog took off barking down the driveway. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Mike. I, I think, oh. Yeah, I have more things to say after okay. Mike. Don't okay. Mike go. Okay, okay. Yeah, Mike's turn. Then Tiffany. Oh, I was <laughs> probably has a good answer. Um, if nothing else, thinking about me, Liz and Tiffany are the ones who, and Carol, I guess we work directly with children on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Some of that is what do we do for the kids who are at least with us, even if. I mean, we can also do work to try to change the system, but even in our own, you know, environments, what do we do? That's what I'm kind of interested yeah. in. That's um, good. Yeah. So, That's what I was going to say. Good um, one, Mike. <laughs> um, yeah, Tiffany. I, I think that radically, like radically performing that different education model that we want to see um, so much of this, like, narrow-minded not that's a not not nice way to say that but the like narrow definitions yeah narrow definitions of what education should be is simply because they like if you've never seen anything different or lived anything different why would you even want to do something different Mm -hmm. and so i think that making those places for childhood that are all of the things that we say school should be so that people have a model to look to and say, look, it's working Mm -hmm. and it's working really well. Mm -hmm. And you can take your longitudinal measured studies and do them here. And it should get even better results with this radically different method and model. That is not how I thought a sentence that started with, you can take these longitudinal studies (laughs) <laughs> was gonna end. <laughs> Your ending was better. Longitudinal is the the key because most research they do is how do kids do in kindergarten, maybe first grade, 
And every yeah. time it goes a little farther, Del Ferran is a great example, the same thing keeps coming up, mm -hmm. you know? Because you can test anything you want. Um, you can teach kids whatever the, um, you know, the U.S. women's uh, soccer, you know, team, all of their names mm -hmm. and all that, and they can recite them this, the way they recite dinosaurs. And if that's what we are testing on, we could say, look at that. It yeah. worked. Yeah. But what does that do for them in their life or even the next five years, let alone the next 65 years, 75 years? Like longitudinal studies are the only way to actually measure things. And yet, yeah. And that's yeah. a if you're going to measure and rather than doing the backwards thing of this is what we want in 12th grade. Right. And then then just back it up and we'll just break it down into steps. You know, the scope and sequence yeah. idea. I mean, just that phrase scope and sequence implies that there is like this one thing that all humans need to do and they're going to do it in the exact same order. And then for all the people who don't fit that scope and sequence, well, they're the challenging children right. or the challenging behaviors or whatever euphemism you want to use. <laughs> and it's like, or we could pretend they're humans figure out what sparks them, you know, have a relationship with them, build off of those things, help them see themselves as someone who cares about others, who learns, who, if they are interested in something, they can do it. You know, they can solve the problems um, rather than, um, nope, that's, but that doesn't fit in the scope. Mm -hmm. You know, sorry, we, we created the scope. You're only supposed to do this much here. <laughs> even, even to the point where I've seen people like a, a three-year-old or well, a four-year-old who gets what negative numbers are, even though they don't have the vocabulary. Uh -huh. So we're like, well, that's not, that's not a thing. Or, you know, they're like, we don't have that on our checklist. Yeah. It doesn't fit in the checklist. <laughs> well, oh, this kid, like they're interested in something that, you know, most people in early childhood, you know, were scared of math. So they mm -hmm. probably couldn't explain it, but, but this child's already figuring it out and why not follow it? Mm -hmm. can't even do the things they're interested in if it doesn't fit a scope. Right. Um, I'm still going into the negative there. I was going to talk about instead. Yeah, go ahead. Did they get in things? Um, I'll try to think of a story from last week. Okay. Someone else Probably. talk while Mike thinks of a story. I'm thinking of instead. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Well, I was thinking, Heather, when you asked what, what should a kind of a frontline teacher caregiver do mm -hmm. rather than this conversation we've been having about big, big ideas and abstractions. And so my response is um, take a deep breath, slow down, mm -hmm. so let your mind slow down a little bit so that you can notice the transmission of values so that you can see that every little thing, every little tiny thing that you do is a value transmitted to someone else's child and to their family. And what you emphasize and don't emphasize, where you put your attention and where you don't, all of those um, inform the child's growing values and what's important to them. Mm -hmm. And if what you want to be important is caring and relationships and kindness and respect and those things, then make sure you're explicitly um, creating opportunities for those things uh, moment to moment, day to day. Mm -hmm. um, 
how you design your daily schedule, how you design your classroom space, all of those things that are in your power um, define the young children's experiences who are in your care. And will um, and it's a I guess the last thing I would say is it's a massive leap of faith. You have to take a leap of mm -hmm. faith. Yeah. All of those things that I was just rambling about will actually make a difference and will get a child ready for school, quote unquote, mm -hmm. um, by giving them all those things and not focusing as much time and energy and affect on reading and math. You will prepare them for reading and math. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> so I just um, looked at the pictures. So I've been on vacation and I'm at a cabin now, hence the lovely backdrop of <laughs> yet. Um, but just looking at photos of what happened yesterday at my uh, center, and there's these toddlers that were given lids and con uh, containers with lids. And then there's just these things of, you know, this child's a music maker. They like put, put a lid on something, started banging it. Mm -hmm. Another child seemed to be shaking things. Another child put a toilet paper tube, like st stuck it in there and then put pencils inside the, the tube. Um, another child uh, just tried different lids, was really mostly interested in making the lids match, which, you know, I could use help with in my kitchen. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just like going through these lists. Another kid just started collecting stuff. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one kid made a hand blaster, whatever that is. And one kid just found a big <laughs> stick and ignored the containers altogether. Sweet. Nice. You know, just that idea that thinking about what the six of us could easily talk about, if you want to talk about school readiness, you right. can. But what about the excitement of that? And, you know, I... Um, you know, you could just even imagine the the children talking to each other or showing each other things or mm -hmm. the excitement of some new discovery. You know, it's, it's that type of spark. And to Richard's point, right? It's like you set up the room, provide space, time, and materials, and the, and then follow the children. Like, yeah, it's not rather than an agenda. And I think, you know, I, I can't remember which one of us touched on teachers needing to feel like teachers. I think, Richard, you were talking about I'm a teacher, not a caregiver, that kind of, of dichotomy. And, oh, and yeah. people do wonder if I'm not focused on these sort of narrow academic performative skills, then how how am I a professional? What am I doing with all my expertise? But what Mike, what you just described, teachers noticed that and valued it enough to share it um, and to support it and to allow it. Um, and that's where we are. That's where our professionalism comes in. That's where our role comes in. And we don't have to fight so hard to be seen as, um, you know, we, we get worried that what I'm doing doesn't look like the societal vision view of what a teacher does. Um, so maybe that's another one of the in the moment right now things we can do to sort of push back is to um to recognize that this is this is me being a professional when i see what's happening here with these containers lids and sticks and toilet paper tubes and one thing i didn't say but at our center we're making a conscious effort this time of having once a month parent um sort of 
you know, times to get together and hear about what is school readiness yeah. in this sense, you know, right? And so schema play theory is going to be a part of that. Um, social and emotional learning is going to be part of that. Executive function skills are going to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Just helping parents kind of understand, because I, I I understand the like parental anxiety right. that happens, but also, um, and here's here's the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And think about it, you know, you can usually say, think about something that happened to you at work. Who are the people you wanted to solve it? Or even if you hire people, you get there, the person lists their, their things, you know, the things mm-hmm. they do, or you have the list of what they need to be able to do. And you often hire the person who doesn't meet every single requirement because there's something there. And it is usually not part of a checklist. Yeah, that's a good point. The checklist is why you hire someone. Yeah. And most parents can understand those things. And our, our population tends to have the parents who are hiring that. Um, oh, yeah. Say, um, currently. But um, but we also work with centers that have the opposite, right? That are much more, um, whatever, more in that working class. The being hired. Being hired. <laughs> there we go. Being hired versus yeah. hiring. But still, like, you can still see that, right? That, um. So yeah, try, so I think that's part of it too, in our small way, right? We're only dealing with the parents in the programs we're part of, mm-hmm. and yet, um, you know, it's a thing we can do. It's within yeah. our control. And we are using the word school readiness for those talks because that's the language the parents, parents right. are But then, yeah, I think our catchphrase is school readiness is not a set of skills, it's about children's um, identity in themselves, thinking of themselves. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I just I can. I, I think that idea of the child's identity being the biggest contribution we can contribute, or the biggest thing we can contribute to in terms of whether they're quote unquote ready to get to that next stage. I think that's an important, a really important thing. Um, yeah, I'm really glad you're using the word. The language school readiness. I think we need to claim it more. Uh, it's it, sometimes we want to change the language, and and yeah. I understand why we need to do that. But I think that's smart mm-hmm. because there are times we're going to have to say no. You know, so do we have the boldness to say no? And if you're if you're in the classroom, you know, if there's something that just hasn't felt very respectful to children, that you just have that impulse, like maybe it's the calendar that you have to do. Maybe it's the tracing the names or something. If you, ha- if you have that impulse to say no, and, and you can do that because you are a professional with a, a very solid uh, foundation of this core body of knowledge of, of child development, then how are you going to say yes? Mm-hmm. So I like that idea of like, you're saying no, school readiness is not learning how to write all your upper and lowercase alphabet before you're five, you're saying this is school readiness. Mm-hmm. And so I might say, Hey, I'm deciding not to do calendar this year. And, and in my school, we have it in this category of, of um, what do we, maybe we're calling it numeracy and math. We're going to make sure kids see those numbers every day or whatever patterns or something. I'm deciding not to do that. So I'm saying no. And here's what I am doing. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm doing. And this is, I care about numeracy too. And look what these kids are doing when they were sorting these rocks and putting them in these containers and whatever that, that story Mike just told about the lids and, and the schema and fitting things inside of each other. You know, this is what numeracy looks like for a three-year-old. 
um, the calendar might be something numeracy looks like for middle school when you got to, you got to follow your schedule, but right now I'm free. (laughs) So, so I like saying no, and then having space and then saying yes. And then, and then pulling that language back in, like this is school readiness. And I think that's something a lot of programs and providers are frightened to do. I think that in a lot of ways, a lot of the way we professionally prepare educators and caregivers is doesn't give them that language and flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I think having that flexibility of thinking is really crucial to being able to make that kind of difference and being able to frame it to parents who are then going to go out to their friends who are also parents and say, oh, but I learned this thing. And hey, look at what they're doing on the playground. They're putting all of the wood chips into this one bucket. It's That's also part of school readiness. And I'm happy that we're sitting here at the playground on Saturday and not drilling numbers or, (laughs) you know, doing our parent-imposed homework because that child is going to be kindergarten ready and letting them play and letting them find and solve those problems. And I think that's one of the gifts of working with the whole family and not just the child is that we can impart this knowledge, impart this creativity and flexibility in thinking about how children learn and cast that wider net, even when we don't necessarily work with all of the children who are going to be impacted by these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the other thing it takes is courage. Yes. Um, You know, everything we've been talking about in this group, we're all on the same page. So we're all nodding and agreeing with each other. (laughs) Yeah, you go and and all that. But this isn't how the rest of the world operates. Um, And so what we've been talking about here is countercultural. It's rebellious. And so if you're going to do what we're talking about, just the simplest things like I'm going to look at my space and I'm going to look at my daily schedule. And I'm going to think about the way I interact with young children for the purpose of giving them more love and caring and kindness and all those things. That's countercultural. And just know that you're going to be um, walking against a very strong wind or a salmon swimming upstream, and you need to be prepared for that. And so part of what Mike talked about was parent education. So if you're going to take on this way of doing early childhood, You have to know that part of being a professional is educating um, the parents and even educating your boss sometimes Mm -hmm. about why you're making the choices you make. And that's unfortunately part of this work. Right. Say say your thing, Mike. You put it in the chat box. That doesn't help for a podcast. (laughs) I'm, you know, because anyways, um, yeah, so... I, and this isn't my quote, but we're not, so for all of those people listening, mm-hmm. we're not preaching to the choir, we're giving you ammunition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's that idea that to be courageous, you need your own groups, whether it's on social media, podcasts, right. other friends you have in your own town that you can, you know, get together once in a while, have coffee or whatever it is, but you need to be able to it's exhausting if you feel like you're the only one. I think Carol was the one who said that earlier. And I think things like this and other things that are around help you figure out, or, you know, at least, I mean, the first thing I do when something comes up is I will usually message Heather. (laughs) Sometimes a group chat. The whole group, yeah. Yeah, you know, but it is that thing, but it helps me get through like, oh man, this thing, or I'm about to talk to someone, what should I say? Yeah. It helps because in the moment, it does sometimes feel like you're the only one, but clearly you're not. Yeah. 
which is why I need you all to move to Indiana, please. And thank you. <laughs> there are a couple houses um, open in my neighborhood. The other state. <laughs> I'm going to raise my hand in the background here. Um, we still need to talk about capitalism again, though, because how many educators don't have time and don't have money yeah. to do any of this? Yeah, it's true. So because we've been talking for just about an hour. Field isn't valued. Uh, that's that's gonna have to be a whole other episode but seriously i i don't want to like just be like shut up tiffany but um my, my laptop battery is about to we die talked about and, it before and we're just a little bit more than an hour so i'm writing it down um and that'll be a next step um um this is a fascinating pod while i'm writing my note um and everybody else is just afraid to speak now because i'm going to hear the pen scratching yeah yeah um okay so i feel like uh this was this was a lot and we could just keep going like there's usually even at the end of an hour there's like a okay this is really wrapping up but we don't have that <laughs> we're not wrapping up so i guess i'll just have to impose that and say um this was a good wait time. i've got one last thing to say okay all right go go Happy 300th episode, oh. that early childhood nerd. <laughs> Thank Woo! you. Well, it's all Yay, of us, right? 300. So, you know, there wouldn't be 300 without um, without you all, um, because I, it wouldn't be the same podcast if it was just me talking, that's for sure. <laughs> um so thank you all for for being part of the nerd collective or coven whichever group you're in on facebook <laughs> um thank you all for being part of it and i really um i mean that i'm so glad that that we get to do these kinds of things together um and for everybody who's listening obviously there wouldn't be a 300 episode without people who are listening to it so, so thank you all so much for this um uh I hope that I hope that we can just keep going. All right, with that, thank you everybody for being here, for listening to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd, and I uh, hope you'll come back again for another episode next week. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.